Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll invite you to stand for the reading of scripture this morning. This is the angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah in the temple from Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to the commandments and the regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as a priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified. And fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him him to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this will happen? For I'm an old man and my wife is getting on in years. And the angel replied, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. But now, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in your time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day that these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering what his delay was in the sanctuary. When he did come out, He was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he returned to his home. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Be seated. Well, welcome officially to Advent. I hope you felt that as you walked in the sanctuary and in the garden court today. We are on a journey for the next four Sundays to the manger, to the wonder of the birth of Jesus Christ, to the incarnation, to God becoming human. Every year, we dive into the biblical story of Jesus' birth, and and at least for me as a preacher, I am always sort of looking for an angle to keep these texts fresh 
and vibrant for us year over year. Uh, I've been dancing around the idea of angels for several years. Uh, The Advent texts in the Gospels have this amazing concentration of angelic visitations. So it's appropriate for us to, to focus on that this Advent. I also thought that it might be an opportunity for us to better understand the biblical idea of angels. Over the years, um, I've heard some very, very smart and mature believers say things about angels that I go, wow, that is not biblical at all. Um, So this might be an opportunity to get back to some biblical reality of these beings, angelic beings. But most of all, in our year-long theme on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it seems highly appropriate for us to focus on angels because they are repeatedly noted as messengers of the good news. Messengers of the good news of the gospel. So it's my prayer as we look at these texts and understand angels a little better that we might too hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ in a new and fresh way more fully this year. Our first angel visitation is to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. The angel comes to this man to announce that he and his wife Elizabeth, even though they are on in years, will have a son. That son will become John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah Jesus Christ, a massively important person in the story of Jesus Christ. We're going to dive into this text more fully in a few minutes. But first, let me ask, before we go through this first angel visitation, what do you think, believe, and know about angels? When you think about angels, how do you visualize them? What, what images come to mind? What have you come to believe about angels, and how did you come to believe them? What sources gave you that information? I want to give you a super high-level overview of angels from the Bible. Um, this will cover us over the next four weeks, and we'll dive more into some of these, but I want to go just really fast. These come from uh, numerous scholars, Wayne Grudem, Fred Dickerson, Michael Heiser. Um, Ten things that I think you should know about angels as we start this series. First, God created angels. Angels have not always existed. Uh, According to scripture, they are part of the universe that God created. In the New Testament, Paul actually tells us that God created all things visible and invisible, and specifically notes The angelic world with the phrase, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or authorities, that's in Colossians. So while these Bible verses tell us that God created the angels, they're part of God's created order, the Bible also suggests that they don't exist in the same way that we do as humans. They don't have bodies like we do. In the Bible, angels usually um, can't be seen by humans unless God chooses to reveal them to them. However, from time to time, angels will take on a bodily form and and appear to various people in Scripture. You'll know that there is no biblical basis for the idea that when somebody dies on this earth, that they become an angel in heaven. Uh, Angels in Scripture were created as angels rather than humans who graduate to an angelic status. Second thing I want you to know, there are three types of angels in the Bible that, uh, by my count, not everybody agrees on this, but... I think scripture names three categories of heavenly beings um, that appear to be types of angels. Cherubim, uh, you'll hear that word every once in a while, cherubim, uh, who seem to be guardians of some sort. They seem to guard things. Uh, Seraphim, who are only mentioned once in the Bible, 
Um, but we know what their express purpose is. Their express purpose is to worship the Lord all day, every day for eternity. That's their one job that they are to do. And then the third category is called living creatures that surround God's throne. They appear in forms like a lion or an ox or a man or an eagle. They represent various parts of God's creation. And they too, like the seraphim, worship God continually. That's kind of all we know about them. You'll want to note that there is no description of a fluffy, pale-winged Renaissance baby with a harp in Scripture. Um, That's not a biblical model for angels. Nor is there any mention of guardian angels that are assigned to certain people. That, too, is sort of a modern idea of angels rather than a biblical one. And while arguments can be made for that idea of a guardian angel, there seems to be no definitive biblical proof of the existence of guardian angels. Third thing, angels have a hierarchy. Um, It's not explained or well-defined, but angels in the Bible appear to have sort of rank and order. We know this because in, in the small book of Jude, Uh, The angel Michael is called an archangel, and that title indicates that he has authority over other angels. Um, We have no idea how many angels exist in this hierarchy, but every biblical reference to the total number number of angels suggests that they are beyond counting. There are so many that they're beyond counting. Fourth, uh, there are only two angels that have names in the Bible, and we just read about one of them. Michael is one, the archangel, and then Gabriel, who visits people in both the Old and the New Testament, by the way, um, including our text today. Uh, Sixth thing, everybody still with me? Halfway there, here we go. Uh, Angels are not omnipresent. Angels frequently appear as messengers in the Bible. They travel from one place to another. But unlike God, who is omnipresent, Angels are finite creatures of some sort, and they are limited to one place at one time. Sixth, the Bible tells us that angels don't marry. Jesus taught that in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. This clearly suggests that angels don't marry. In fact, no no passage in scripture actually addresses angels having a relationship with other angels at all, even relating to other angels. So anything beyond uh, the fact that angels exist and that there are many of them is just speculation in terms of their relationships. Seventh thing, and I think you probably know this from Scripture, angels are very powerful. Uh, They are called mighty ones who do his word. They're called powers. They're called dominions. They're called authorities. They are certainly greater in might and power than us humans. Angels use their power to, to battle against evil forces in the world. And Hebrews 2 actually says that during their earthly lives, humans like us, we are lower than the angels. But then Paul in 1 Corinthians says, as powerful as angels are, when Jesus returns, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, are going to be raised even higher than the angels. have no idea how that works, but there you go. Number eight. Angels are not just sort of a monolith. They are meant to be examples for us as well. They show us what perfect obedience looks like. Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, God's will, we know, is done by angels. Immediately, joyfully, and without question. So their delight seems to be to be God's humble servants. Faithfully performing whatever assigned task he gives to them, great or small. 
And our desire and prayer should be that we would do the same. Angels also model worship for us. John, in the book of Revelation, sees around God's throne a great angelic army numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with one voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So if the angels find their highest joy in praising God continuously all day, every day, isn't that instructive for us in some way too? Isn't that an example for us? Number nine, angels are not to be worshipped. Worship of angels was actually one of the doctrines that was being taught in Colossae that Paul comes pretty strongly against. In the book of Revelation, an angel warns John not to worship him. He says, you don't do that. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you as a human and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Instead, worship God. Pretty clear. We shouldn't pray to angels either. God, only God is, is able to answer prayer. Paul warns us against thinking that any other mediator can come between us and God. There's one God. And there's one mediator between God and men. That man is Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Timothy. So if we are to pray to angels, it would implicitly give them an equal status to God. And there are no examples of scripture of anyone praying to an angel or asking an angel for divine help in the way that we're supposed to ask God for it. And then, number 10. You apparently cannot summon or encourage angel appearances in your life. There are no magic words for this. Scripture gives us no warrant to seek appearances of angels in our lives. The holier you are, it doesn't mean that an angel is going to come. The more messed up you are, it doesn't mean that an angel is going to come to you. They manifest themselves unsought. To seek those appearances, to seek those angelic appearances in our life would seem to indicate an unhealthy curiosity or desire for some kind of spectacular event rather than the love for God and devotion to him and his work, which is what the angels are all about anyways. So though angels do appear to various people at various times in scripture, the people apparently never sought those experiences. They did not summon them. So our role is to talk to God, to seek God, who is himself the commander of the angelic forces. There's more things to know about angels, but these are the 10 that I want to give to you. And I want to say, as I do this, I want to confess I've never seen an angel. I won't ask you if you have. I would guess that throughout this morning, if I made people raise their hands, there are some people who would say, yes, I have seen an angel in my life. I know people who say that they have seen an angel in physical form, and I believe them. I've never heard an angel speak to me in English or any other language for that matter. But I do know people that say that they have, and I believe them. Even though I've never seen or heard an angel that I can point to in my life, I believe in them. When I was 12 years old, our our family, uh, as we were in the car together, hit black ice. We went into a ditch. We rolled over six times. I, I remember being tossed around like I was in a washing machine. And all four of us walked out of that truck with just bumps and bruises. How do you explain that? Dumb luck? A good roll bar in the truck? No, I think God was protecting us with his angels. Messengers of his good news that protect our lives, that care for us. I've known people in my life who have spoken truths to me that they couldn't possibly have known about me. Was that an angel speaking through them? 
There are strangers that I've met in my life that have said things to me where I've walked away going, was that a human? I'm not totally sure. But I think God's angels are at work all the time. And I'm encouraged by the knowledge that God's angels are indeed at work. In special circumstances, I might even have one of those rare personal visitations from an angel. Wouldn't that be cool? But even if not, I still recognize God's angelic beings at work. Remember, angelic visions are a very rare occurrence in Scripture. Only a a small sliver of, of biblical characters encountered an angel. But our Advent texts note a super large portion of those people. And each visitation that we read about in these Advent texts give us a sense of the unique roles that God's messengers play. And that's what we're going to be studying each Sunday. And today, it's Gabriel and Zechariah. But our goal is not first and foremost to study angels, but rather to study the God who sends these angels. And what does this visitation teach us about God's message for the world that he loves? There are a few things, but first, let me ask, what do we know about Zechariah as we get back into this text? We know uh, about Zechariah, all that we can know about him is from, from Luke's first chapter, really. We know that he was a priest. That was a hereditary function, by the way. It wasn't based on skill. It's a hereditary function in the biblical Israel. At, at any given time, there were about 20,000 priests in Israel. Every direct male descendant of Aaron, who was Moses' brother, was automatically made a priest, and only them. They were the ones who were the priests. And we also know that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth had no children. She was past childbearing age. And this was a real tragedy for them, as it would have been for anyone in the first century. It was considered shameful for the woman who had no children in an honor-shame society. It was also a financial liability to, to, not, to have no one to look after you as you got too old to do the work where you earn your wages. So barrenness was seen as a real sickness in that time, a punishment for sin. But Luke makes a very specific point of telling us that this couple was not sinful. Verse 6 said both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. We also know that Zechariah in this text is given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You don't understand that until you understand the priesthood. Um, during, during the week when Zechariah's family line were serving in the temple of the Lord, Zechariah was chosen by lot, by chance, to perform the evening incense offering. This was a massive deal for a priest. One of the most solemn and holy tasks that you could possibly do, and each priest was, would only perform this once in their lifetime if they were lucky. Most priests never got this chance to do this. Every priest dreamed about the opportunity of doing this, the highlight of their career. So when Zechariah's name comes up, what he did is he he would enter the holy place in white robes, no sandals. Two other priests would enter with him, and then they would leave once they had made the room ready for him to do his incense. And while Zechariah was in there, the other priests would wait outside and, and get on their knees and pray fervently for him that he would survive the holiness of this task as he threw the incense on the fire of the golden altar, which is a fragrant fragrant smoke that would rise to symbolize the prayers that the priest is making on behalf of all the people, the prayers rising up to God. So while in that holy place, an angel 
the angel Gabriel, shows up. And he announces that Zechariah's prayer has finally been answered. It's been heard. Now, this must have been a little confusing because Zechariah was praying for the salvation of all his people. That's what his prayers would have been at this incense offering. Was that the prayer that's being answered? Well, in a way, Gabriel announces that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son. And they're going to name their son John. And he's going to be this special man who's going to turn the people of Israel towards God and prepare the way for the Messiah. So in a sense, Gabriel is saying that Zechariah's prayers have been heard for both a child, for he and his wife, but also for the salvation of the people of Israel. God, Gabriel's saying God's heard it all <laughs> because John the Baptist is going to pave the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Zechariah responds in the same way that I think many of us might. Really? Because I'm old. My wife is barren. I don't know that that makes sense. How do I know that this isn't some sort of prank? That's a loose translation, but I think that's kind of where he was going. And then look at how Gabriel responds to that. He says, I'm Gabriel. What's my job? I stand in the presence of God. That's what I do. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. He tells us what his job is, to be in the presence of God and to speak the good news. That's a good job description for angels. He tells Zechariah that because he was not quick to believe this good news, that he was going to take away his speech temporarily until the time that that promise was fulfilled. Zechariah does regain his speech. It's a beautiful story. That's a story for another day. For today... What good news does this angelic vision speak to us here today? What good news is there for us? A few takeaways. First, I think it's good to note that God is more likely to impress his good news on us while we are worshiping. Good for you to know. You're in the right place, right? It makes sense, doesn't it? If the angel's job is to be in the presence of God and to worship him all day, every day, doesn't it make sense that the messengers of God's good news would show up as we worship. When we are intent on seeking God's presence, he has our attention. We're much more likely to hear from him. So, one simple sort of takeaway there is don't miss out on opportunities to worship. Certainly corporate worship like you're experiencing here right now, but also in your homes and at your desks and around your tables, there's no greater Advent encouragement that I could give to you than to commit yourself to every opportunity that you have to worship because God shows up in mighty ways when we do so. Second, and, and kind of most importantly in this text, this vision awakens us to the good news that God is at work in ways that we can't see or comprehend. That's part of the message here. Zechariah and Elizabeth had probably given up on the idea of children. Probably wasn't an active hope for them. For them, that dream was dead, right? But Gabriel says, God has been at work in ways that you can't imagine. Not only will you have a child which is going to bless your family, but that child is going to bring about your other prayer request. You know, the really big one. The salvation of an entire people. Of the entire world. So let me ask, what is it that seems dead in your life? 
dreams for your life, your career? Is there a relationship that feels permanently severed for you? Are there places in which you've lost hope? Are there prayers that you used to pray that you just don't even have the strength to pray anymore? I think God's message through this text is, wake up. Wake up to my presence. Arouse that which is dead and dormant because I'm doing something. I am at work even in these places. I'm answering your prayers in ways that you can't imagine. I'm doing deep work beneath the surface. All is not lost. Um, I couldn't help but think about uh, Albania when I was reading this text because Albania is a country that, among all the atheist states that existed in the 20th century, was the most thorough in their attempt to suppress not only public worship but every trace of spiritual life possible, even in people's private homes. Every church, every synagogue, every mosque was, was closed in the country. But not only that, even if you hung an icon in your bedroom or you made a sign of the cross before dinner, you could be brutally punished by this atheistic government. When uh, the communist regime in Albania last collapsed, at last collapsed in 1991, uh, the Orthodox bishop, his name was Anastasius, visited Albania with, with very little hope of what he would find there. It was Europe's poorest and most damaged country with decades of godlessness. He assumed that this would be a place that was totally spiritually dead. But when Anastasius arrived, to see if what, what was left, if anything, of Christianity in Albania, Albania. He walked the streets, and he found people coming out of their homes and loudly greeting him with a paschal greeting. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. He found microchurches that had been meeting in basements, Christian homes where people were worshiping privately but fervently. He recalled, quote, everyone was weeping, and I was not an exception. There were tears of joy. The longest and darkest of nights had ended, and now the dawn had arrived. That which was dormant was now awakening. The good news of God, especially in this Advent season, is not simply an academic exercise for us. It is, it's not something that we're supposed to just understand and assent to. The gospel is active. It's at work in ways that we can't comprehend. Awakening that which is dormant. Working towards purposes well beyond our initial hopes and prayers and desires. I don't know how many of you here today need to hear that gospel good news, but God is at work in ways that you can't see, that you can't comprehend. One last lesson. Uh, we're going to contrast Zechariah with, with Mary in terms of their responses next week, but suffice to say, when you receive God's good news, when he answers prayer, when he speaks to you, it's good for us to respond in praise and faith and gratitude and obedience. If we don't do this, I think God will still be gracious with us, just like he was with Zechariah. He'll probably slow us down. He might silence us for a little bit, whatever he needs to do to get through to us. But, it would be better for us to respond in obedience and wonder, just as the angels do.
That's the message of Gabriel's visitation with Zechariah. And that's our prayer.